An update from the EPO, guidelines and formal priority entitlement. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Cartmels in Conversation. I'm Isabel Barry, and today we'll be talking through uh, some of the, a couple of updates from the EPO. Later, we'll be hearing from Dan Goodman about a recent referral to the Enlarged Board of Appeal. But first of all, we have Clarissa Luxton, Richard Payne and Will Mooney discussing the recent batch of updates to the EPO guidelines for examination. Clarissa, what are the EPO guidelines for examination? What's their purpose? Well, the EPO guidelines for examination are pretty much what they say on the tin. They're primarily a tool used by EPO examiners to guide them in their examination of European patent applications. But they're also a useful summary of EPO practice for applicants and their representatives. And in fact, it's expected that applicants and their representatives are familiar with the guidelines. And the EPO updates the guidelines on an annual basis, and the new version is published each year in March. So the most recent version, and the one that we're going to be discussing today, was published on the 1st of March of this year. And these updates are intended to take account of recent Board of Appeal and enlarged Board of Appeal decisions and to reflect the EPO's current practice. And it's important to take note of these updates because, as I mentioned, we're expected to be familiar with them. And as European patent attorneys, we make use of the guidelines almost every day because, from our perspective, a novelty or inventive step argument is more likely to be successful if it kind of goes with the grain of what's in the guidelines. Okay, so uh, what are some of the important updates in general in the recent guidelines that you think we need to know about? So I actually think that some of the seemingly more minor updates are actually worth discussing because they're more likely to have an impact on our day-to-day practice. So one of the first updates that I'd like to mention is regarding the impact of non-payment of excess claims fees. So an EP application can have any number of claims, but there are claims fees due for the 16th and each subsequent claim, and it can get quite expensive. So claims fees fall due within one month of filing the claims, so pretty early on in prosecution of the application. And failure to pay means that the claims for which no excess claims fees have been paid are deemed abandoned. And this is risky because unless the subject matter of that claim is otherwise found in the description or drawings, it will not be possible to reinstate that claim later in examination of the application. And there's previously been some legal uncertainty surrounding the situation that I just mentioned, in which a claim is deemed abandoned for failure to pay excess claims fees, and the subject matter of that claim is not otherwise found in the description or drawings. And in particular, there were diverging views as to whether a divisional application, which is a further application sort of divided out of the original parent application, so it has the same description and drawings, could be filed to that subject matter, or whether the claim was substantively abandoned, which would impede the valid filing of a divisional application. So it's really pleasing to see, in my view, that this section of the guidelines has been revised to explicitly clarify that any claim, or a feature of said claim, deemed abandoned due to non-payment of a claims fee, can still be pursued in a divisional application. And I find this particularly reassuring because it provides a bit of a safety net for applicants, although quite an expensive one because EPO fees for filing a divisional are quite high. 
But on the other hand, it is still better to have all the subject matter in your description so that you don't ever need to rely on this. Okay, yeah, I can see how that is reassuring. Are there any other updates that aren't quite so comforting? Well, yes, unfortunately. So it's worth briefly mentioning the updates to the section of the guidelines regarding rescheduling of oral proceedings, because I know this can be quite a contentious point amongst patent attorneys. So the date set by the EPO when it summons parties to oral proceedings can only be changed if there are serious reasons which justify a change of date. What does the EPO mean by serious reasons? Well, there's a list of examples of what constitutes such serious reasons in the guidelines. And in the past, the EPO has been pretty strict about treating this list as exhaustive. But in this year's updates, this list has been revised to specify that serious reasons include a summons to oral proceedings for the two preceding or two following days, only where the other oral proceedings are to take place on the premises of the EPO at a geographically distant location. So I've interpreted this to mean that oral proceedings before a national court on the two preceding or two following days no longer constitute such serious reasons as they would have done last year. And presumably, neither does a summons to oral proceedings via video conference, which is also quite a hot topic at the moment. Or if both hearings are in Munich or both hearings are in The Hague. But reassuringly, in respect of oral proceedings taking place on the same date or the preceding or following day, the guidelines still mention other proceedings before a national court as an instance of a serious reason. So you won't have to sort of fly between different national courts on the same day. Well, that's something at least. Thank you. And so as well as these procedural updates, I know that there are some updates relevant to um, specific areas of technology. Richard, you work in biotechnology. Have you got any updates that are specific to the life sciences? So, yeah, there have been a couple of updates this year that are specific to the life sciences. So as um, Clarissa mentioned, the EPO updates the guidelines annually. And last year in 2021, there was a major rewrite. They introduced a new section regarding the patentability of antibodies. So um, monoclonal antibodies are an important class of therapeutic and they're very commercially relevant um, and it is therefore important that patent attorneys and the examiners at the patent office have clear guidance as to how it is possible to protect these classes of molecules. So as monoclonal antibodies are proteins that bind to a particular target, one way of claiming these molecules is by reference to the sequence of the antibody or the sequence of the parts of the antibody that are involved in binding to the target. However, the guidelines also emphasise there are a variety of ways in which it is possible to claim antibodies, for example, by combining both structural and functional features of the antibody in a claim. This year, there have been a couple of changes to this section, and it seems the main changes have primarily been to overcome potential ambiguity in the language that was introduced last year. So, for example, the EPO has clarified that the antibodies exist in multiple formats, and has emphasised that when they refer to a conventional antibody, they're referring to an immunoglobulin G-type protein. So these proteins are the standard format and have six regions, known as CDRs, that are involved in binding to a target. It has long been EPO practice that when claiming an antibody by a sequence, it is necessary to define the antibody by the sequence of the six CDRs. However, the EPO has clarified that if fewer CDRs are involved in binding to a target, it's possible to define the antibody using fewer CDR sequences. So this is likely to be especially important for antibodies that exist in alternative formats other than the typical IgG. And there's also been a couple of minor updates to clarify the requirements for inventive step in relation to antibodies. Interesting. It's certainly reassuring to see that the EPO is keen on improving the clarity of these sections of the guidelines that we so often rely on. 
Uh, is there anything else that biotechies will be interested in? So for anyone working in the life sciences field in, in patents, they'll be aware that sequence listings um, form an impo- important part of a patent application. So um, it's a requirement for any amino acid or nucleotide sequences that are present in an application to be presented in a separate document known as a sequence listing. And this is primarily there to make it easier for examiners to search the application and search for prior art documents um, that may contain proteins or nucleotides that have the same sequences. Um, If there are any issues with the sequence listing, the EPO will issue a formalities objection. For example, if a sequence listing was not filed, but there are sequences disclosed in the application, or if not all of the sequences that are present in the application are present in the sequence listing. And this year, the guidelines have been updated to clarify the type of formality objection that can be expected if there are such issues. For example, whether a communication will be issued because of a deficiency in the sequence listing or whether um, the sequence listing should be filed as a missing part. Okay. Can you explain to our listeners what you mean by a missing part? Yeah. So when we um, file a a patent application, um, the EPO will conduct um, formality checks um, to make sure that all the parts of the application are present. And if it notices that parts of the description or the drawings appear to be missing, um, the EPO will invite the applicant to file the missing part within a period of two months. So this is good because it means that it ensures that all parts of the application are present. However, it does have the potential risk that the filing date of the application could be redated to the date that the missing part is filed. Um, the guidelines this year have been updated to clarify that it is actually only in rare situations that the sequence listing should be filed as a missing part. And they provide some examples where this situation arises. And they highlight that the majority of the time, the the EPO will issue a communication indicating that um, there is a deficiency in the sequence listing and invite the applicant to pay a fee and remedy the deficiencies. And as a quick aside, um, the guidelines have also been updated throughout to refer to the fact that the World Intellectual Property Organization, or WIPO, is introducing a different format for the sequence listing and that this comes into force for new applications filed on or after the 1st of July 2022. Great. Thank you, Richard. I know it's going to be important for those who deal with sequence listings to know all the details of that new format. Now, how about the tech side of things, Will? So this has been a significant year for changes in the tech area. There's been a substantial set of updates to the guidelines related to excluded subject matter and inventive step in the context of computer-implemented inventions, and these are particularly relevant to computer simulations. The updates are not revolutionary in the assessment of these types of inventions, but they do codify existing practice and provide some new guidance to applicants. So for excluded subject matter, the new guidelines incorporate a two-hurdle approach, which requires that a claim is first examined for whether it is completely excluded from patentability before investigating which features can contribute to the presence of an inventive step. This is similar to existing practice, but the clearer and more formal layout of the tests should make it easier for applicants to work with. There have also been several new examples given for various types of simulations to try and provide clearer rules on what counts as a valid technical effect, which is an extremely important aspect of inventions that are close to the edges of excluded subject matter. This should again be of assistance to applicants when drafting, as there is now significantly clearer guidance on what counts as a technical effect in many specific circumstances. Okay, and you mentioned that some of the updates are relevant for computer-implemented inventions. Uh, Yes, so for inventive step, um, the existing approach has been to use the Convic approach, named after the case which gave rise to it. This approach is largely based on determining which features in a claim give rise to a technical effect, similarly to what I mentioned before. 
and then determining an objective technical problem to be solved by the invention based off these features which can give rise to a technical effect. So for this approach, two new examples have been added to the guidelines to demonstrate how this approach can practically be applied. And the second one of these examples is particularly helpful as it provides new guidance on the scenario where a technical effect is not credibly achieved over the whole scope of the claims. And as with the excluded subject matter section, uh, the additional detail now provided in the guidelines means that the updates should be helpful for applicants. Very helpful. Thank you very much, Clarissa, Richard and Will. Now, Dan, there's been a new referral to the Enlarged Board of Appeal on formal priority entitlement. Can you explain to us what uh, formal priority entitlement is and why it matters? Certainly. Uh, When a first patent application is filed, then a later patent application to the same invention may be filed within a year that benefits from that first filing date by claiming priority from the first patent application. A common arrangement involves filing a US provisional application first and then filing an international PCT application one year later. Ensuring that the later application is entitled to priority can be very important because this protects the later patent application from the impact of disclosures that occurred in between the two patent filings. For example, if the inventors published a journal article shortly after the first patent application was filed, then if the later patent application was entitled to priority, this journal article would not be prior art against it. However, if the later patent application was not entitled to priority, then that journal article would be considered under novelty and inventive step. This may present a difficult or even impossible challenge to overcome. A European patent may not be granted or may subsequently be revoked as a result. So priority entitlement is really important. The new referral to the Enlarged Board of Appeal, G1 and G2 of 22, relates to the question of who is able to claim priority and how that is assessed at the EPO. Okay, so could you explain to us um, how this has been assessed at the EPO to date? Well, under Article 87 EPC, the applicant for the first application may claim priority when filing a later application. Alternatively, that applicant may transfer their priority rights to another entity, and then that successor in title may file the later priority claiming application. The current EPO guidelines require that this transfer occurred before the later priority claiming application is filed, and that it must be valid under the relevant national provisions. A typical example of a transfer is an assignment from an inventor to a company. There is a widespread practice at the EPO of investigating the validity of such priority rights transfers in detail. This sometimes involves analysis of employment contracts, R&D agreements and assignment documentation, supplemented by declarations from legal experts and the persons involved. A lot of time, a lot of money and a lot of paperwork. Now, the first question that has been referred to the Enlarged Board of Appeal asks, does the EPO actually have jurisdiction to make this assessment? So if the EPO has been routinely examining priority right transfers, why has this question been referred now? This practice has been questioned from time to time over the years. And for example, boards of appeal have asked whether the EPO should be examining priority right transfers in a number of communications. 
One point that they have highlighted is that the EPO does not have jurisdiction to examine whether an applicant is entitled to file a patent application. Thus, at the EPO, a corporate applicant would not have to prove that it acquired the right to file a patent application from the inventors. However, under current EPO practice, that same corporate applicant may well have to prove that it acquired priority rights from those inventors. And the Boards of Appeal have suggested that there may well be an inconsistency here. Uh, The referring board considered this to be a convenient opportunity to raise the jurisdictional question because it is referring another question relating to formal priority entitlement. Ah, what's this other question? Uh, The second question relates to the validity of the PCT joint applicants approach. This is a basic form of priority analysis that opposition divisions have been using under specific circumstances. In particular, PCT applications for which inventors are designated as applicants for the US only. The typical scenario involves the inventors filing a US provisional application and then being named as PCT applicants for the US only. Over the past five years, many opposition divisions have considered this arrangement to mean that there is no need to establish that priority rights were transferred to the PCT applicant for Europe. Priority entitlement has been acknowledged without any further paperwork. A Board of Appeal had never had to decide whether this practice is correct until now. The referring board considered the PCT joint applicants approach to be a disputed concept and a point of law of fundamental importance, and so asked the enlarged board to consider whether this approach is indeed legally valid. Well, it's going to be very interesting to hear what the enlarged board makes of this. Can you explain to our listeners what's going to happen next in the enlarged board proceedings? Certainly. Um, The enlarged board has set a deadline of 29th of July for the parties to file submissions. And the president of the EPO and third parties will also need to provide their comments by that deadline. We might see a provisional written opinion from the enlarged board on this issue. If that happens, it could be in Q1 2023. A hearing may well take place in the first half of 2023 with a written decision possibly being issued by the end of next year. So it could be up to 18 months before the enlarged board gives us the answers to these questions. Uh, What do you think we should be doing in the meantime? Well, for now, it is important to carry on filing any suitable documentary evidence that shows that the priority rights were transferred to the PCT applicant for Europe before the PCT application was filed. We should also be mindful of the possibility of requesting a stay of proceedings for those cases where the validity of priority rights transfers is decisive for the outcome of the case. This option can pause EPO proceedings until, at long last, the enlarged board has issued its decision. Great. I look forward to that day. Thank you very much, Dan. That's all we have time for today. If you'd like to ask any questions, please do get in touch. Our contact details can be found on the Cartmel's website. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Cartmel's In Conversation. If you would like to hear more from the Cartmel's team, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you normally get your podcasts. We hope you'll join us again soon. Goodbye.